Let's now turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. We've been looking at uh, Paul's uh, rebuke. He started with very strong terms. You have left the gospel. You've forsaken Christ. You've turned the cross of Christ uh, into something uh, which is never meant to be, which is a, a false way uh, of using the law or seeing the law. So he's, he's exposed the two extremes, uh, using the law as a means of being justified or replacing the cross with the law. And the other extreme is using the cross as a reason to ignore the law or seeing as Christians that we have no longer a use for the law at all. So today we're going to find in this week's consideration and next week as well the proper way in which the law is to guide us in our lives. So this is Galatians 5. We're going to start at verse 16 and then we'll read. Uh, let's read all the way to the end of the chapter, but our focus is on 16 through 21. So Galatians 5, that's page 1,157. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here's our text. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And that's as far as we're reading here in Galatians 5. I do encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Galatians 5, verse 16 and following. And we pray for the blessing of our God upon the preaching of his word. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our world lacks clarity. It lacks clarity concerning a whole range of issues. What was once forbidden or at least frowned upon in society is now not only openly accepted, but it is praised. As we saw from Isaiah referencing it this morning, woe to those who call evil good and call what is good evil. One of the responsibilities we have as God's people is to be very clear when it comes to identifying sin, calling a spade a spade. Here in Galatians 5, Paul is going to clearly draw the line between what is acceptable behavior, praiseworthy behavior, and what is works to be rejected, denied, and not practiced. Paul is reminding us that in Christ we are free. If Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. 
But we begin to see this last week, that being free in Christ does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want. We're not free to go our own way or free to do what is right in our own eyes. Freedom also means bondage to Christ, bondage to a, a life that is pleasing to our God. So today we are going to see, and we're going to parallel today's sermon with next week uh, evening, Lord willing, with looking at two paths, two ways of life. The first way of life is the passions and pleasures of the flesh. Our passage talks about the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. What do these things look like and what does this kind of life lead to? And next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit. What does this kind of life look like and what does that lead to? So you're going to be looking at these two parallel paths. Where do they lead to? Certain aspects of our lives are part of the old way. Paul would put it like this, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Being joined by Christ, joined to Christ by faith, means that there are aspects of our nature, of our desires, that need to be put to death. They're joined to Christ and they went with Christ to the cross. They are dead and buried. They no longer rule you. They no longer define you. But they still are part of our old nature, but they need to be struggled against, put to death, because Christ has put them to death. And next week, Lord willing, we'll find that we are raised with Christ, raised to live a certain way as well. So next week, we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit. This week, we are looking at the works of the flesh. Remember that the life of the Christian is one of warfare. Putting things to death and pursuing another way of living. Putting to death the sins that remain and coming alive in the image of Christ. As a part of this warfare, we should not be surprised that warfare is difficult. Warfare is strenuous. Warfare is painful. So today we are going to see as the law is opened before our eyes, we could say the moral law, the Ten Commandments, are being applied by Christ. What actions, what motivations, desires does Christ expose with the, the light of his law to show us the sin that remains within, to warn us, against the dangers. We need to know our enemy, to see our enemy. We're going to look at this theme. Jesus Christ has freed you from bondage to the way of the flesh. Jesus Christ has freed you from bondage to the way of the flesh. We are liberated by Christ. This theme again. We're liberated by Christ. Liberated to pursue the law of love. But the law of love teaches us to say no to some things and to say yes with others. So the old flesh, crucified with Christ, no longer living, our actions must now reflect this. The list that we're going to be looking at is found in verse 19 through 21, which is the, uh, the actions that Paul here says, these things have, are to have no part in the Christian's life. They're divided into four main categories. Those four main categories are found here uh, in our, our bulletins. 
So those who walk by the Spirit will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The first category that Paul sets before us in verse 19 is this. Sins that are sexual in nature. The works of the flesh are fleshly. They are a perversion of fleshly desires. They are, as verse 16 said, the lusts of the flesh. So the first sin that Paul is going to expose using the law to expose in our lives and in the lives of this world are sexual immorality. That's the first thing. Now, sexual immorality here used by Paul is a a very broad term that covers a multitude of sins, but it's basically dealing with physical union outside the bonds of marriage. So that would include adultery and fornication. When a man and woman perform the act of marriage without actually being married. Next on the list is impurity, meaning uncleanliness of any kind. The Greek word here is directly connected to our word for pornography. It's pornea. This is immorality of the desire and the eye. The third kind of sin in this section is sensuality. We would call this indecency. Uh, This is akin to our word for lust or, or fantasy. It would be the sins of the mind or imagination. So when we take this first category, dealing with sexual sins, dealing with various aspects of sexual sins, what Paul is here saying, what you do with your body matters. Right? You are not your own. You are purchased. You belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. And when you belong to Jesus Christ, you're joined to him. So what you do with your body is a reflection of something that has already been joined to Christ. Will you take your body that has been joined to Christ and then join it with a prostitute? As Jesus would say, simply looking lustfully at someone who is not your spouse is already committing adultery in the heart. So the whole range of sexual sins would include crass, crude, dirty jokes, suggestive or provocative dress or speech applying to both men and women, boys and girls, looking at images that excite the flesh or providing images that excite the flesh are here strictly forbidden. What is being called for is modesty and chastity in action, in thought, and in speech. Whether or not you are married, these sexual sins are to have no place and no part of our lives. 1 Timothy 2 puts it like this, dress modestly with decency and propriety. Now there is to be very clear differences between how God's people, how the church live and act and relate to each other and how those who act within the world live with each other. It really is not shocking to us when we recognize the depravity of human nature when we hear the world talking about things like hookups and body counts. 
Those who sleep around or wear provocative clothing designed to get reactions from others. Or how many social influencers make their money on OnlyFans. We look at the world around us, we see prostitutes walking openly in the streets. Pornography is rampant. A struggle. It's for us, we we have our phones or, or the internet access that we have. It's everywhere and it is pervasive. But here Paul clearly says, sexual sins are against God's law. They're against the law of liberty and love that Christ has given to us. Because sexual sins destroy what God has created good. It destroys marriage. It pollutes a body that God created in his image. It pollutes a body that Christ has redeemed with his precious blood. Even as you look at the book of Proverbs, the prostitute's house leads to death. Only a fool would go that way. So flee from this way of life. Where you see sexual sins in society, don't put yourself in that context. Don't emulate the world and its actions because God's people are distinct, are set apart. We are not slaves to the passions of the flesh. Paul then continues with the second group. Second group here that I call uh, connected to false worship. When we're looking at the the law, Paul is going to be applying both tables of the law. Remember, children, there's two tables of the law. The first table of the law deals with our relationship with God. The second table of the law deals with our relationship with man. So both tables of the law are here being, being applied to us. In verse 20, we find the sin of idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is worshiping something that is not a true God. Or idolatry is also trying to worship the one true God in the wrong way. Idolatry tries to approach God on man's terms. Idolatry does not give God the glory that he deserves, does not acknowledge him in the way that he sees fit. This is seen in atheism. It's seen in false religions. Any form of false worship, and you find this throughout the scriptures, God is not only concerned with the fact that he alone is worshipped, he's also concerned with how he is worshipped. We can't just make up any way that we come before God. We can only approach him in a way that pleases him. You look at the first of four commandments. So any form of false worship or worship of any form that is not ordained by God is false worship. The sin of idolatry. Added to this, Paul says, the sins of sorcery. Now, sorcery is a sin of using magic or special formulas as a way to manipulate God. Think witchcraft, Uh, Dark magic, secret arts. And interestingly, if you look at Acts chapter 19, there were many in the early church who once practiced these things. They had books of magic. 
that they burned together in Acts chapter 19. Included in this area of sorcery are sins of the occult or devil worship, a fascination with voodoo dolls or Ouija boards, looking to horoscopes or fortunes in order to tell the future, to try to have a secret inner path in order to get God or to get some secret power on your own side. Now this category is is becoming blatantly obvious in our society, the sins of sorcery. Uh, perhaps you saw this uh, over the past, uh, I think it was over Christmas break, there was a, a statue dedicated to the worship of the devil set up in the Iowa Capitol building. To worship the devil in the state of Iowa. And if you watch which I'm not encouraging, if you watch sports halftime events or music festivals, it is not uncommon to find devil worship in word or in form, symbols and actions. Many of the most well-known actors in Hollywood and musicians engage in overt pagan revelry seen in galas like the Grammys. These sins are offensive because it is a sin that uniquely destroys man's relationship with God. Yes, it is true, as David said, all sin is a sin against God. Against you, you only have I sinned. But God is particularly offended when not only human beings refuse to give him the worship that he deserves, but they give that worship to the enemy, to the devil, the murderer, the father of lies. God is not to be mocked, and he does not take it lightly when people refuse to give him the worship that he deserves. So as I said before, both tables of the law are included in this list of sins, how we treat our neighbor, and how we treat God. But those who are still enslaved in their sins hate not only their neighbor, but also hate God. The third category found in our list is the sins of hostility. Now, this third category is the most extensive in our list, and a lot of these terms have overlap in how they are applied. It is hatred made evident in how we treat others. Murder that goes back all the way to the beginning of the first brother who killed his brother. The first sin on our list here is enmity. Now, enmity is a general term for hostility uh, where you see your neighbor as your enemy. Strife, that is being quarrelsome or obstinate. Uh, People who simply cannot get along with other peoples. What we would tend to say is, is these kind of people just do not know how to play nice with others. They are obstinate. They're always against people. Uh, They reject all attempts of reconciliation. Where the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, these are the war makers. Enmity may be a sin of the mind. Uh, Strife is a sin of the tongue. Strife is speech that tears down and breaks communication. 
Next in our list, we find jealousy. Now, there is a good form of jealousy, and there is a wrong form of jealousy. A good form of jealousy would be a husband and wife that are jealous for the sole affection of the other. And God is even jealous for his own worship, honor of his name. He's jealous for his own praise. But in this list, jealousy is a sin where you want something that does not belong to you, to desire something that someone else has been given. This jealousy often leads to rivalry, the next sin on our list. Rivalry is where you wish ill on the person who has what you want. So the connection is jealousy is simply wanting something. Rivalry is you want something bad to happen to the person who has what you want. You want them to fall, them to be destroyed, so that you can scoop up the loot. Rivalry is seeking to get ahead of others by putting them down, stepping on others so that you can be exalted. Not only do these sins of hostility, not only is this wanting to keep up with the Joneses, as it is said, it wants the Jones family to go bankrupt so you can buy their house and take possession of their cars. That is this form of growing hostility connected to envy as well, which is found at the beginning of verse 21. As I said before, there's a lot of overlap here in this hostility. Uh, Then we have, uh, next on our list, fits of anger. Fits of anger. Fits of anger is when the sinful nature is not restrained so that it overflows in swords or knives coming out of your tongue. You are useful to me only insofar as I can use you, and if you stand in my way, I will burst out in my anger against you. Now, when it comes to fits of anger, I think we all can think of uh, an illustration. When you go into the grocery store, you see this toddler uh, laying on the ground screaming, I want Captain Crunch or whatever. They're throwing their temper tantrum over. But unfortunately, this can be seen in adults as well. They may not lay on the floor crying and screaming, but if they don't get their way, they respond with words of war, fits of anger. You can see this by just turning on the TV. You can listen to uh, any uh, apologetic discussion, and if a person comes up to, the, to uh, someone who's sitting at a table uh, giving uh, an apologetic for the Christian faith, The people who walk up shout and scream and cry and rant and rave like a little child in a fit of rage. They cannot bear to listen to reason. Or a couple years ago, we had the riots or people burning buildings, cars getting smashed, young people showing a lack of restraint. Paul here says that these words and outbursts of anger are to have no part in the lives of God's people. Even when things don't go our way, and especially when things don't go our way, we need to be very careful how we respond. That we do not let the the red-blooded animal consume us. When we are home with our families, that is when this, I'll call it this animal, is most prone to be found. We have a way of restraining our anger when we're by other people, but when we're just at home with our family, that is when fits of anger are often seen flying off the handle. 
letting off a little steam, as we like to say. Paul says that is unbecoming of a Christian. That's not how we are to live. The last on the list here of hostility is dissensions and divisions. This is the sin of dividing and putting a wedge between people. Especially in the context of the church, it is very easy to use your tongue to turn people against others, to get people to side with you, to to speak about an issue so that you can get them on your side and turn them against others. All of these sins, Jesus would say, are directly connected to the sin of murder. And in fact, some of the some of the various uh, versions of this particular uh, chapter include murder in this list as well. But even if the, the specific word of murder is not included, Jesus would say, if you speak, if you curse your neighbor, you have committed murder. Right? Cursing, attacking, undermining the life of others, this is one step on the path that leads to cold-blooded murder because sin destroys relationships. Sin leads to a hostility that replaces love with hatred. And that brings us to our final point, which is sins of excess. One more category. This, in the sins of, acts of excess, there are two words here found, or two works of wickedness. Verse 21, sins of excess are drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness, as you know, is drinking too much alcohol, whether that's wine or, or beer, so that you become drunk. Paul warns in Ephesians 5, do not be filled with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. So drunkenness, but also orgies. Uh, now, orgies are what we would compare to a drunken sex party. It's similar to what you will find if you go to a dance club, frat parties, sports bars, where there's too much drinking, suggestive dancing, and overeating, kind of all rolled into one. These revelries that Paul is here referencing were found in the temple of the Roman gods back in the day when the book of Galatians was written. That's where you had pagan temple prostitutes. So you had um, prostitutes laying or sitting on the steps of the temple. Men would come up to them, hire the services, and perform some a sexual act of worship. And that's all these orgies uh, that Paul is ha- here having uh, in mind. So what often happens is a person uh, who becomes wasted or buzzed or high, whatever way you want to say it, your self-restraint is removed and you commit other sins that you would normally not commit. Here it is a perversion of something God made to be good and to be received with joy. A little wine gladdens a heart. So food and marital pleasure between a husband and wife are great blessings from God. But what the sinful flesh does is it takes these blessings from God out of their proper context or turns them into a God where they are idolized, where the sinful flesh is, see, is seeking from the gifts, from the, the pleasures, what should be and can be found from God and in God alone. 
These are the works that come natural to the man, and we expect to find them in the lives of someone who does not know God. The redeeming work of Christ and the sanctifying work of the Spirit means that these works are not to be found among God's people. So Paul would put it like this, I have learned to keep my body in check, to keep my flesh in submission. I've learned self-restraint. Worldly people, those outside of Christ, spend their days thinking about when they can get drunk next, when they can get high next, when they can have their next hookup, where to find their next fleshly prize. But not so God's people. God's people have learned to restrain their tongues, how they speak, restrain their eyes. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at young maidens. And Job lived how many years ago? So this is not a new problem for God's people. It is part of of the sanctifying work of the Spirit that we learn to, to see the desires of the flesh in the proper context. To enjoy blessings from God's hand the proper way, but to also learn that these pleasures, these joys that we endure, that we enjoy, are never to replace God. Because Jesus Christ has sent us free from the empty and meaningless pursuit of pleasure. For the food, food was made for the belly, and the belly was made for food, but in the end, these do not save. Life is more than eating and drinking. Our bodies have more significance than just being objects of pleasure. Before we close, Paul concludes the matter in verse 21. Remember I said we're going to look not only at this lifestyle, but where this lifestyle leads. What's the end result? So someone who leads a life of continually subjecting themselves to the sinful desires of the flesh living in slavery to the passing pleasures of this world, where does that lead them? Verse 21. I warn you, the end of verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are slaves to the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Put this another way, if you idolize the flesh, you will not go to heaven. That's what Paul is saying. If you idolize the flesh, if you worship the body and the pleasures that the body can enjoy, and to be very clear, there is a certain sense of pleasure that people get from going spouting off in anger as well. All of these sins have to do with pleasure. If you live a life of slavery to doing whatever feels good and whatever feels natural, whatever I like doing, that's what I'm going to do. And haven't we heard this? Who are you to tell me how I should live? That is how our world thinks and rations. Paul says, if you live like this, you are not going to heaven. You are living for yourself. Now, Paul is not saying If you fall into one of these sins, that sin cannot be forgiven. 
That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is focusing on the continual nature of repeated commitment of these sins. It is slavery to this way of life. As God's people, we still struggle with this. We still struggle with sins of the flesh. But when we commit sins of the flesh, we hate them, we flee from them, we repent of them. We ask God to pardon us and to cleanse us. You find this in the early church. I, read, I spoke earlier in Acts chapter 19 where there were some who were sorcerers. They were, um, and they were engaged in magic, superstition, religious rites and rituals. They had certain chants and incantations that could bring you pleasures and, and could, could turn things in your favor. And then they became Christians and they burned all their books, their magic books. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, this church in, in Corinth, some of you used to live like this. Some of you used to go to these drunken orgies. Some of you used to go to the bars. Some of you used to be enslaved to alcohol. Some of you used to be enslaved to the anger monster. Some of you used to be subject to, to gluttony. Some of you used to commit all these sins of, of idolatry and adultery. Some of you used to live like that, but no more. That's not who you are in Christ. You are washed. You are sanctified. Jesus has set you free. Verse 24, our fleshly desires are crucified. They died with Christ when Christ died. When you are joined to him by faith, your old man dies, dead and buried in the grave, not to be brought out again. Because the fact is, sin is enslaving. Sin wants to be your master. Sin wants to consume your time, consume your resources. It wants to control your life. Sin is addictive. The more you do it, the more you want. And the easier it is to commit it the next time. And every time you commit it, it offers a little bit less reward, so you keep needing more. As we saw with this example uh, last week, the old man, your sinful desires, it's like keeping a wild beast in your backyard. If you don't want your sinful nature to consume you, don't feed the wild beast. Don't open the door and let it in your house. If you know where you are tempted, then you don't go there. You don't do that. Because Jesus has shed his blood to give you liberty. You don't have to live like this. You have freedom in him, freedom from the bondage of sin and freedom to fight the remaining sin. And next week, as we will see, freedom to obey with joyful thanksgiving. As Christians, we cannot be shy when it comes to calling out sin. We cannot be shy when it comes to calling out sin. But remember the parable Jesus said about the log in your own eye? It's really easy to stand here on Sunday and say, look at what's going on on the TV. Look at what we see in society. What does Jesus say about me and about you? So be careful, be mindful, look at yourself as well. 
Because the same sinful nature that leads to all those sinful excesses and bondage in the world, that's the same nature that you still have and need to fight against. So as Christians, we're not shy about this. We call sin, sin, and when we sin, we repent. Because sin is an attack on God, and it's an attack on fellow man, and it leads to destruction. So we don't make excuses for sin. We hate it, and we repent from it. Because Jesus has freed us from bondage to living in the way of the flesh. The law of liberty teaches us to say no to sinful flesh, saying no to idolatry and no to adultery, no to false worship, no to hostility, and no to sinful excess. So may we take this warning to heart and may we put to death any sins that remain within as we come alive in the image of Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and uh, we feel the prick of our conscience. For we know, O oh Lord, that these sins we find in our passage are sins of the sinful nature that we too are tempted towards. So we repent, O oh Lord, we confess our sins and we pray that your spirit would teach us to see our sins, to hate our sin, to flee from it, to repent from it. May, O oh Lord, this way of life never have bondage or sway over our lives. We thank you for the liberty that is ours in Christ, for the law of love, which now guides us. So may we love you and love our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.